The Positive Pause is a motivational-minded podcast covering topics women want to know about as they journey to and through menopause, focusing on subjects that impact women's health and healthy aging, including what it means to age healthfully. The Positive Pause features experts and influencers from a variety of industries and specialties. The information and opinions expressed on The Positive Pause are not intended to replace the services of trained professionals or to provide specific medical advice. To see the National Menopause Foundation's full medical disclaimer, please visit nationalmenopausefoundation.org. Welcome to The Positive Pause. I'm Claire Gill, founder of the National Menopause Foundation. Joining me for this episode is Michelle Rauthenstein. Ms. Rauthenstein serves as the owner and president of Entirely Nourished LLC, a specialized private practice in nutrition counseling and consulting focused on the prevention and management of heart disease. Employing a science-based holistic approach, she is dedicated to enhancing women's heart health by addressing cardiometabolic risk factors and mitigating the likelihood of cardiovascular issues as an individual ages. Acknowledged as a thought leader and expert in heart disease management and prevention, Michelle is deeply committed to educating individuals on nurturing their hearts for healthy and thriving lives. She adopts a dynamic perspective on nutrition that addresses the root causes of chronic diseases, safeguarding individuals' hearts for longevity. That's what we want to do. Her passion lies in translating nutritional sciences into easily understandable language that can be applied for the long term. As the author of the Truly Easy Heart Healthy Cookbook and a member of the Forbes Health Advisory Board, Michelle has delivered numerous lectures on heart health to diverse audiences. She has also been cited in reputable journals, including Medical News Today and on television, including Fox News, Forbes Health, Live Strong, Eating Well, Health, and Very Well. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So this is really exciting, and I'm delighted to speak with you about heart health, as this particular episode is going to air in February, and it's Heart Health Month. So let's start by talking about some of the risk factors for heart health. I know we've heard them before, but it's definitely worth reviewing. What are the risk factors for heart disease that women in particular should know about? So there's many things that we need to be looking at, and a lot of times we hear about one specific factor for heart health. And we need to be looking at the full picture, which is kind of grouped into that cardiometabolic region. So we're referring to blood pressure. A lot of times when we'll go to the office, a doctor's office, and they'll be a little anxious and their blood pressure will be high. And the doctor will just say, oh, it's anxiety. Don't worry. Nothing to worry about. But then a whole year passes or another six months pass And the blood pressure is still high, but it hasn't been checked. So blood pressure is a really, really important one that I want to really emphasize today, where women should know their number. And if it is elevated in their doctor's office, check it at home. One-time measurement of blood pressure is not enough to assess how blood is adequately flowing in your body. So check your blood pressure. Make sure that we're getting it to 110 over 70 or 120 over 80 to ensure that you're protecting your heart health and you're having good blood flow. 
Other factors are cholesterol. So we're particularly looking at elevated levels of our LDL cholesterol. We're looking also at blood sugar levels. So your glucose levels, your hemoglobin A1C, which assesses for three months of your blood sugar levels. We also really need to focus on abdominal weight. Many times women are very focused on the number on the scale, but from a cardiovascular standpoint, we need to be looking at the waist circumference. So get one of those really soft waist circumference measuring tapes. You can get them at your local pharmacy or online for a couple of dollars. And don't suck in, don't suck out, but measure where your belly button is. And we really are trying to aim that to be less than 35 inches. And that's a really good indicator of cardiometabolic health as well, because if it is higher than that, it could mean that there are a lot of inflammatory markers present or insulin resistance, which can increase heart disease as well. Can I stop and just ask you there for, Michelle, the 35 inches circumference on the belly fat, and we'll talk more about postmenopause in a minute, but is that no matter what your height is, it should be 35 inches? Okay. Yes, that standard is, we kind of look at it as a overall standard, no matter how tall you are. In certain ethnicities, it's actually less. So in South Asians, we want that to be two inches less as a gold standard. The other thing that I want to emphasize, though, because I think we get lost a lot of times in numbers, is what is your baseline, right? So if someone is always a certain amount and then they check it every year and it's going up by half an inch or quarter of an inch, that should be a red flag of, oh, something's brewing. So it's important that we individualize some of these values, but also understand what what is our trends? What is our history? And so really being proactive means getting your labs ask for a copy of it and kind of look at year to year to assess, oh, wow, my cholesterol went up 40 points. Maybe it's still within okay values, but 40 points increase in a year is significant. Something is brewing in the body and we need to address it. The other cardiometabolic risk factor that doesn't really get talked about enough is inflammation. Inflammation is a big one, and the waist circumference can hint at underlying inflammation, but we can also test for it in a blood test called HSCRP, and we really see that that value is a big indicator for cardiovascular disease because cardiovascular disease is an inflammatory condition. So we want to make sure that that value is less than one milligram per deciliter as a reference point for low inflammation. Inflammation is really, really of interest to me. And I know that it's it's important, obviously, overall health, but it also is such a major risk factor in other diseases too. So could you repeat, first of all, what that blood test was to test for inflammation? HS, which stands for high sensitivity, CRP, which stands for C-reactive protein. Yeah, that's great because that's the kind of thing that people can ask their clinician about if they have concerns in that area. But I would imagine if anyone has conditions that are related to inflammation, they might have that that high risk and it might not be because of heart, it might be because of their other risk factors, right? Is that possible? Right. So when we look at heart health, we have to understand that, okay, it is the number one leading cause of death and comorbidities and it's complex. 
So it's not just one thing, which is why we need to look at everything. A lot of inflammatory conditions increases the risk of heart disease. When there's inflammation in the body, it can cause more plaque to form in the arteries, which can lead to blockages, narrowing, stiffness in the arteries, which makes your heart overwork. So we need to be looking at all of these different things and realizing that if we re- optimize them, mm-hmm. we can reduce the risk of heart disease. So I don't want these to be something that makes someone fearful of, oh, I have an inflammatory condition or, oh, my cholesterol's high, I'm nervous, I'm scared. I want you to take it as an empowered approach. You knowing your numbers allows you then to take action to optimize them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you have diabetes or you have a history of high cholesterol, high cholesterol, but you are managing it, then you're reducing your risk. And that's the important part. But if you don't know and you're not being proactive and you're not optimizing them, that's when we are increasing the risk of heart disease. And especially during this peri and postmenopausal period of time. Yeah. Knowledge is power for sure. And that's across obviously in everything, but particularly when it comes to our health. And as you said, knowing what's happening gives us the opportunity to make change and empower the sort of denial that anything's happening can puts us at risk and unnecessary risk where it could be things that can be addressed quite easily with you and your, your healthcare provider. So it's great to remind people again that these are the things we need to look up. So let's talk a little bit about why heart health becomes even more important postmenopausal. Why does a woman's risk of heart disease increase at or after menopause? Estrogen is really cardioprotective. So when a woman's body produces less estrogen, they're going to have an increased risk of heart disease in and of itself. So to give you a background, what does estrogen do? Estrogen helps to keep our blood vessels flexible. It helps regulate cholesterol levels. And it also has antioxidant properties that protect against plaque buildup as well. Once our estrogen levels come down, it can cause a change in body fat distribution. It increases the risk of high blood pressure. It can change the lipid profile. It can also cause, you know, an increased risk of osteoporosis, insulin resistance, diabetes, all of these things that increase our cardiometabolic risk. It's important to note that, yes, our our risk increases during this period of time, but if we're being proactive about it, and this is kind of my take-home message, it's not inevitable. And I think that's important, right? We don't want to just blame, oh, we're in menopause. This is going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to you if you're being proactive, you're asking the right question, and you're taking your health in your own hands to say, I'm seeing my blood pressure creep up. What can I do? Mm -hmm. What can I do about, you know, okay, I see that I got a DEXA scan and I am having osteopenia. How do I prevent that progression to osteoporosis? All of those things are helpful as long as you are being really honed into having that team to help you achieve all of these parameters and reduce your risk of these things going the wrong way. I think that that is so important, Michelle, because we do often get into that mindset of, oh, this is what happens when we age. And particularly, obviously, my my other hat as, as osteoporosis organization, we definitely hear that all the time that, oh, bone loss is just an, an inevitable part of aging. And it doesn't have to be, as you said, that, that there are things we can do to mitigate that loss. And that's across the board in so many of these areas. I often think that 
menopause or the approach of menopause or the menopausal journey is a really great time to stop and take stock of where our health is. As you said, if we haven't had those baselines, then get those numbers so that you can now track that for the rest of your life because we don't normally pay attention when we're young. You know, we don't normally have the early cholesterol issues or inflammation or things like that sometimes. So really at midlife, it's a great time to sort of say, okay, where am I health-wise? And then how do I protect myself as I age? Because we all wanna have that active, healthy longevity And I think, honestly, that the current generations who are approaching menopause and are postmenopausal are really in that mindset. We want to know, we are trying to take steps and gain that knowledge of how do I make it better? How do I protect myself for the future? And so again, paying attention to heart health is so important. So why is nutrition, now let's get into your specific area of expertise too, why is nutrition so important to heart health? I mean, it, it's obviously important to our overall health and well-being, but why does it play such an important role in heart health? Nutrition is so vital because what we eat, so focusing on what you're adding and what you're consuming in your diet helps your body work better. It helps your blood vessels stay intact and be more protective, be more elastic, allow for better blood flow. It also helps the heart pump blood better throughout the body. So we need to be focusing on what foods are we adding to the diet to help with optimizing the pathways that our body needs for it to thrive and to do its job effectively. It's also important because there are key foods that we can add to the diet to help lower blood pressure, to help lower cholesterol levels, to improve our gut health, our skin health, our bone health. And so when we focus on these nutrients, we have more energy, we reduce our cardiometabolic risk, and we improve our lab parameters, but we also feel better. We have more energy. We're going into our aging years gracefully with a really empowered approach, but a feel-good approach. And I think that's super important. So nutrition, a lot of times when clients come to see me, they say, you know, Michelle, I'm having a healthy diet. I don't know why all these things are happening. Maybe it's genetics, maybe it's menopause. And when I look closer into their diet, they're so focused on what they're not eating that they're not really paying attention to actually what they are consuming. And we often define a healthy diet based off of what we're not consuming. Oh, I don't eat processed foods. I don't eat junk food. I don't eat red meat. Okay, but what exactly are you eating to nourish your body? And that's often the missing component. We need a lot more different nutrients as we get older, and we need to be including that in our diet and focusing more on that versus a lot of, I don't eat this, I don't eat that. And especially in social media world right now, there's so much negativity about don't eat this, don't eat that, don't eat this, don't eat that versus, okay, we need to be including these things in the right balance for our bodies to thrive. It was really interesting. I love that approach too, because if you if you look at it as a, what do I need to add to my diet? All of those things that you said were the knots, you know, that we shouldn't, that we need to eliminate. Well, there's not going to be room for them if we're adding the good stuff that we need to our diet, right? There's only a certain capacity. So in a way, again, if you start with, oh, I'm going to add these healthy things into my diet, it's going to naturally balance out that some of those other maybe things that we don't, don't necessarily need will kind of fall by the wayside. At least that would be how I would hope it would work. 
we do that. So let's talk a little bit about then, you know, it's not always easy. I mean, it should be. And I think that like, we know the right things to do. And I say this from personal experience. I know what to do. I talk to all of the experts. I have all of this resource and information at my fingertips. And yet sometimes I don't do it. And really trying to get to that, how to make it simple and easy for people is so important. So what really inspired you to create that truly easy, heart healthy cookbook? Were you seeing like that, the, that same thing that people were just struggling with trying to figure out how to do it? I think a lot of times when you think of a heart healthy diet, or when I wrote this cookbook, a lot of people would look at oh, it's bland, it's not going to taste good, oh, it's too hard to cook healthy. And so the concept really came from the fact of, hey, I can give you five ingredients, put a lot of good flavor in these foods, and it's quick, it's easy, it's tasty, and you're also getting the nutrients that protect your heart and your blood vessel health. And so that's kind of where the inspiration came from. And to be completely open with you, I mean, I have... Lot of little kids in my house. I have four boys and I love them and I love teaching them about nutrition, but I'm always, what's a quick and easy thing I can make? And so my way of cooking is really, hey, I do not want to prep for more than 10 minutes. I'll put it in the oven for more than 10 minutes, but it needs to be quick and easy, but it needs to also taste good. And so that's kind of how I've always cooked because I just don't have time to make elaborate meals. And so part of the cookbook was because of my own love. That's how I cook. And then also to the fact of my clientele don't really have the time or the want to spend time in the kitchen. Before COVID, I was working in the city. I had a I had a Manhattan office and most of my clients put their shoes in their oven. They never cooked anything either. (laughs) They didn't have a spice. They didn't have a pan. They didn't have anything. And so I would teach them how to eat just at restaurants alone. But then as we started working together, they got more curious. And so teaching them the simple basics of how you can make a really quick and easy nutritious meal is also part of my inspiration too, because that was my main clientele for so many years. Yeah, that's so funny. So I too lived in Manhattan and I love that the picture of putting your shoes in the oven when you have such limited space sometimes in New York City apartments, you use every space you can get. But I have a funny story too. I actually, um, I did food PR earlier in my career and was working with chefs and I was doing a segment on, I think, like the Today Show of Good Morning America with celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson, who, for those who are foodies, know he's got a bunch of restaurants in New York and around the world, and he's just this incredible chef. And I brought the cast iron pan that I had at home for the segment because you need to bring everything with you. And he looked at the pan and he said, oh, my God, you've never used this. And I said no, you're right. It's just sitting in my apartment. It's literally brand new. And so he's like, I'm going to season this for you while I do this segment and get this pan ready for you to use. So it's so true about New Yorkers. Sometimes it's too easy to just grab something at the corner deli versus cooking. So I love that helping people get to that easy part is so important. What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions about eating a heart healthy diet? That's a good question. A lot of it is that 
things are not going to taste good. You're going to remove all of my favorite food. And it's important to recognize a couple of things. So when you look at the literature, what is a heart healthy diet? You know, the top diets that have been touted for heart health are the Mediterranean diet, the green Mediterranean diet, the plant-based diet, the DASH diet, the plant-forward diet. And they all share when you look at kind of the research of how our bodies and our gut take all these foods and utilize them, they all share many of the same nutrients. So many of the same, the vitamins and minerals that your body needs. And well, why isn't people following it like you said before? And I think the biggest thing is personalization. So there are people who come to see me who have been on you know, went on a vegan diet for a couple of years and they're like, I can do this. This works for me. There's other people who've been on a vegan diet and they're like, Michelle, I gained weight. I have my high blood sugar levels now. I'm pre-diabetic and it doesn't work for them. And there's other people who only eat meat and potatoes. And now like I had a heart attack and now I don't know what to do. And I hate vegetables and I hate fruit. So there's so many different profiles that come to see me. And it's really important that you kind of look and say, what can we do? What can we prioritize? And what are the small changes we can do? I always focus on three to four changes at a time with my clients, because if you go completely the opposite of what you're doing, it's not going to last long term. And you have to realize with heart health that this is a lifestyle plan. This needs to be looked at in a long term plain view, because If you do something for three months, you're not protecting your heart. What you do every day on a consistent basis, and you don't need to be perfect by any means, but the consistency of it, doing this 80% of the time, 90% of the time, and you do this for the rest of your life, that's how you prevent other future cardiovascular complications. I think a lot of people go to extremes when they get a diagnosis and it doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. And that is what we need to demystify and debunk. We need to be personalizing the nutrition so that this can be real, it can be sustainable, and you can optimize your cardiometabolic risk factors, not just for the next three months or six months, right. but for the rest of your life. And that's what we need to be focusing on, the longevity of this. And so we need to be real. And we need to realize what works for us, what doesn't, what tastes good, what doesn't taste good, and put that all together to make sure that this is sustainable. That's really, really interesting and so important. And you're right, because, you know, I think anything's doable for a couple of months. We can eliminate something for our our diet and maybe feel good and drop a few pounds and stuff like that. But as you said, that's really not sustainable and it's probably not great for overall health. But you shared earlier, right? There's more than you in your household. So when there is this personalization and this need to kind of find what works for you and what doesn't, well, what if your partner or your spouse doesn't like the same foods? What if your kids don't eat the same foods? What's your suggestion for those kinds of situations where it's it's really kind of hard to personalize for everybody? Yeah. So I'm not a short order cook. (laughs) Everyone in my family eats the same thing. There might be some food preferences or wants or desires, and we do have like options in terms of variety so that people can tweak their foods to make it work for them. 
But I think it's important to come to the family table and have a discussion and make sure that you have options for everyone, but you're still not cooking six different meals because that can really burn you out. And then at the end, you just put up your hand. You say, I'm just going to order. It doesn't make sense for me. So I think that that's super important. And I also think it's important to not label someone as, oh, you have a heart issue. I don't. So you eat that and I'm going to eat this. We need to protect our heart no matter where we are in our heart health journey and as we age. So we need to come together and, and talk about it, right? Like if you made a meal and the other person didn't necessarily like it, was it the spices? Can we add some more spices afterwards? Is there a condiment we can add to make it more flavorful for that person? What is it that it's missing? And that way we can tweak it so that the meals that you're having together are at the base the same. So you're not getting burnt out in the kitchen and you're allowing for some variety. So everyone's happy. My biggest thing is I want you to be satiated after you eat and I want you to feel like, wow, that was a delicious meal. I'm satisfied because if you're not satisfied, you're going to graze after. You're going to look for something else or your body is going to crave something else and you're going to be like, oh my God, why do I have this craving? Because you didn't satisfy your need earlier. So I'm really, I want you to get that satisfaction feel, but we need to make sure you're not making a million different meals we have to come together and make sure that you can cook for the whole family kind of in that one pot, so to speak. Yeah, I love that, that the, the idea of using condiments to sort of make everybody happy kind of stuff. In our household, I'll share my husband's from Baltimore. So Old Bay ends up going on so many things that I think are just awful. And my husband and daughter are just like, oh, if they add Old Bay to or Tabasco, to anything. It's delicious. So <laughs> you really can just find that seasoning that makes it work for people. And as the cook, I have to not be insulted when I make a meal and then they top it with Tabasco or with Obey seasoning to kind of make it more to their liking. So I totally appreciate that. And coming to that, like you said, having that discussion about what would make this, you know, satiating for you, what would make this something that you really love to do? Okay, so let's talk about what's your favorite go-to heart-healthy meal. After a long day, we've all had them, and you don't feel very inspired to cook. If you want to do something, prepare something heart-healthy for yourself and your family, what's your favorite go-to? So these days, I've been... Like Thursdays, our kitchen stock is usually low. (laughs) So... I always have a bag of sweet potatoes. And what I do is I'll cut them in half. So their cook time is like 25 minutes. I'll put some seasoning, some cinnamon on it. I'll throw that in the oven and we'll have a sweet potato bar. And what that really means is kind of going through the refrigerator and everyone gets to kind of put their toppings of what they want. And we make sure that it's balanced. So we have the sweet potato as our complex carb. We'll add maybe lentils or if there's leftover tofu or chicken or beans, we'll add that on top. Everyone gets to choose. We'll add in a healthy fat. We'll usually take some frozen veggies and kind of warm that up alongside it. And it's kind of like a clean your kitchen out with all the stuff from the sweet potato bar. And some of my kids will put salsa on it. Some will put peanut butter, some put yogurt. And it's actually become kind of like a fun tradition of, oh, every time there's a sweet potato, they're like, okay, what toppings are we going to put on top of it? So it's nice because everyone kind of can choose what they want to add to it. Mm -hmm. And it's fun. 
it's easy and it's very rich in potassium, magnesium, calcium. We make it fun and nutritious at the same time. And that's been my go-to for a couple of weeks just because sweet potatoes last a while. Yeah. And it's an easy thing in my fridge. I love that. That's a great suggestion. So now I have to ask, I'm not a sweet potato fan. The rest of my family is. I have never been able to get into them, even I know how great they are. But as a first-generation American of Irish descent, potatoes are my go-to. Like, I love potatoes. And I just saw an article that said potatoes, when you don't mash them with butter and milk and you don't fry them into French fries, whatever, are actually good. Is the potato and the sweet potato, I know sweet potato is better, but is potato okay for those potato bar things too? A hundred percent. And potatoes get the worst rep ever. Potatoes are so nutritious and they, sweet potatoes and potatoes actually have two different profiles. So sweet potatoes have a little bit more potassium, but white potatoes have more folate and they're great for you. So enjoy the, whichever potato you like more, enjoy it. If you want to add even another kind of pro tip from a heart health perspective, make your sweet potatoes the night before, stick them in your fridge and then reheat them. And you'll add in a little bit of resistance starch, which can help with gut health and can also help lower your cholesterol too. So regular potatoes, sweet potatoes, whichever one you like, they have such a bad rep, but they're so, so good for you. That's awesome. I really love that. And I've always been the kind of person who just a boiled potato with no butter on top, literally just salt and pepper has been like my favorite. And my family thinks I'm crazy because I don't put sour cream and butter and all this kind of stuff on it. And now I'm like, feel so vindicated that just the good old potato is all, I, <laughs> is all I need to have. And it's good for me. So I love that. So, oh my God, we could talk forever, Michelle, about all of these things. And I so appreciate you being here, particularly during Heart Health Month and sharing your expertise If there's one important takeaway you want our listeners to know from today's podcast, what would that be? Don't wait. What I mean by that is be proactive in your health today. Get your blood tests, go to the doctor, check your blood pressure, check your waist circumference. The earlier you intervene, the better it is for your longevity and for your heart. So make sure that if you're seeing trends in the wrong direction, if you see something off that you take action now versus waiting until something happens, you are your own advocate. And so you need to take your health in your own hands and not wait for the doctor to say, okay, now it's time to go on the medication. Now it's time for surgery. You need to be proactive in that. And you need to take action as soon as possible. So be empowered and let's age gracefully together so that you can really take ownership of your health. That is fantastic advice. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us, as I said, and we will include additional information and resources about your cookbook and your work and your practice with the notes of this episode so our listeners can follow up and learn more. I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode as much as I have. And if so, please subscribe to the Positive Pause podcast so you never miss an episode. And please share information about this podcast with your family and friends. Thanks again to my guest, Michelle Rothenstein. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune in to another episode of the Positive Pause.